Well, good morning, everyone. I want to get started a little early since we have a critical mass, and I want to uh, maximize our time with our speaker. I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you very much for being with us on this lovely uh, February morning. Those of you who are regulars know that uh, February is, of course, President's Month, and St. John's is, of course, the Church of the Presidents. So for a number of years now, we have focused our talks in February on the life and times of a given president. Over the course of the years, we featured a number of presidents, but I was just making the remark that we have never featured a living president. And so we're especially pleased today to focus on the presidency of the nation's 39th president, Jimmy Carter. And who better to speak to us about President Carter and his presidency than Dr. Meredith Evans, who is the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum, which is administered by the National Archives and Records Administration. Dr. Evans is the first African-American woman to direct a presidential library, and I should mention that she's also the president of the Society of American Archivists. In her current role, she works to make a difference in the civic life of our communities by motivating people to make a difference through acquiring knowledge, skills, and values through both political and non-political processes. She earned a master's degree in library science from Clark Atlanta University, a master's degree in public history from North Carolina State University, and a doctorate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. With that, please join me in welcoming Dr. Meredith Evans. Good morning. So in the 21st century, I did not print out my notes. So if you see me looking at my phone, it's really just my notes. <laughs> I sit in meetings now, and we all have to have disclaimers as we're typing away on our phones, and people think we're playing games. I'm going, no, we're actually taking notes. Um, this is just an honor. It's, it's a real honor to be here today. Um, I was telling Clark, I sat through service. My grandmother was Episcopalian, and it was just really beautiful. Um, it made me think great thoughts of her. Um, so thank you for inviting me. Thank you for a lovely service. Um, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about President and Mrs. Carter. Um, this job that I have, um, I have many bosses, um, some of which here in DC, the Archives of the United States appoints us. Um, then there's like a supervisor of presidential libraries. And then I get to be in the field in Atlanta, Georgia, where my real bosses are President and Mrs. Carter. I think they trump anything and everybody once they've entered the building. Um, each leader illuminates different qualities. And President and Mrs. Carter, I talk about them synonymously. Although President Carter was president, you know, behind every great president and man is the wife. Yeah, yes, the yes. wife. Um, and it's interesting to watch them grow. It's interesting to watch her lead. And it's interesting always to hear from him and watch him lead. Um, they are in their 90s. They are well. They would have been here if we would have let them come. Um, he continues to not slow down. I was telling Clark earlier, uh, I think about the second fall, he finally allowed somebody to care for him during the day, other than Mrs. Carter. And he came into the office one day, and we're all getting ready. He asks lots of questions, so we're all prepared for a tough meeting. And he says, hey, have you guys seen this show, Law and Order? 
And we're all looking at each other going, yeah, that show is great. And we thought, huh, he must, somebody turned the channel and he'd been watching the marathons of Law and Order, which was a show he had never really seen before. And we were thinking, huh, so that's President Carter. He leads with humor, he leads with humility, and he leads with thoughtfulness. I have a few observations, and I will talk about them both because together they're just a force to be reckoned with. There are four leadership qualities they consistently exhibit. Honesty, resolute, innovation, and servant leaders. Um, they are exactly how they seem. They are humble, they are thoughtful, they are prayerful, they're strong. And you will see that throughout their work at the Carter Center. You will see that through their work in the presidency at the White House. So let's talk about honesty. Um, if you think back to the Carter presidency, and we remember the long lines of the gas stations, and we remember all of that trying time, um, President Carter believes in being truthful. No matter how difficult it is to speak or say something that people don't like, he's honest. And I look at the pictures in our collection about the people standing in the lines and the cars and the anger and the news reports, and I just remember thinking, he's honest. He has a saying, this is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth and it is a warning. Be truthful, do not tell a lie. You can lead well only if the leader is trusted and truthful. And in 95, he is still that way. They are resolute. They're determined not to give up. If you look throughout their presidency and their post-presidency, things are still the same. If they really want to get something accomplished, they keep working at it until it is. I think the most famous um, or most recognized moment of this is the hostage crisis. I would think many consider that the reason why he did not get a second presidency, and he looks at it as, I was determined, and I wanted the American people to see that I was working on this, not just campaigning. He wanted you to know that he was determined to make that happen. And you fast forward to his past presidency, where he's been working on guinea worm, removing guinea worm for decades. He, they are determined. It went from 30 million guinea worms and infections to down to 12 in 30 years. That's a huge accomplishment, but he's determined. He will be here until the very last worm is removed from this earth. <laughs> that resoluteness, that behavior keeps them going. I think about pre-presidency. I think his opportunity as a Georgia State Senate, I think about his fight for voter fraud that he won in Georgia. I think about his first attempt to run for governor because they knew that he was not supportive of segregation. And he was determined. And the second round, he won, which led him to his presidency. They are servant leaders. They are good old church, church folk. They are respectful of all religions. They believe in faith. They believe in having something more in your life than just the human capital. They're servants. 
Whatever they can do to help, whatever they can do to make your world better, they try to do together. They focus on the growth and the well-being of others all the time. They treat everyone the same. His upbringing is quite interesting. His mother was a liberal. His father was a segregationist. His mother was what I call a circuit nurse because Plains didn't get a hospital until quite later. He was the only child born in a hospital. And they still moved him back to the house with no indoor plumbing, right? So they knew what opportunities were, but they did not want to take up space when it wasn't necessary. So he grew up with that thought, you give to others. If you don't need it right now, you give it to somebody else or you give it to somebody before you need it. Servant leaders. They really do treat everyone the same. We come in, they come to the office, and we're all ready to dote on them and carry stuff, and they'll go, stop it. They'll carry their own bags. They'll carry their own coffee. They'll do everything, and then bring you something. And you think and go, out of all of the people in the world, these are people that don't need to give us anything other than their time and yet they still serve, that servant mentality. They're innovative. I talk about this with my staff. I talk about being innovative with this work. These are federal records that we house. We have a museum of beautiful artifacts that are the public's. These artifacts are not the president's. If it was, they would be in their home. These are gifts to the country. This is diplomacy at its best but they're innovative. They're super innovative. They think about so many things before others do. I walk through the museum and we have a solar panel. The solar panel that came off the White House once Reagan got into office. Who thought about putting solar panels up in the 70s? Nobody. And then I look at gas prices and I go, man, kind of wish we still had those solar panels up. I think energy prices and gas prices would be a little lower. When I first moved to Georgia, gas was 79 cents. It's now about $3. It's a little more than in DC right now, actually. I was passing by a gas station. I was like, oh, I didn't pay that yesterday. But I think about how thoughtful and how, how innovative it was to think about ways to control energy with natural resources at a time when no one was really thinking about that. Well, in his words, maybe the hippies were. <laughs> The other determination and the innovation in this is that how they were from the beginning is how they are now, and the things they work on are the same things they worked on when they were in Georgia. So currently, there's solar panels on our roof at the library. There's solar panels at the Boyhood Farm in Plains, Georgia. And those solar panels support the about 25 or 30% of the electricity in the town. So Mrs. Carter has a mental health journalism program, innovative. When you hear the two phrases together, it doesn't even make sense, mental health and journalism. Who would have thought? But this is a woman when she, when they were in Georgia and he was a state senator, she was already going before Georgia state uh, legislature, fighting for mental health, fighting to remove the stigma off of something that people thought was so wrong and so strange. She was fighting to maintain services for people who were suffering, whether it was from depression 
Alzheimer's or bipolar, whatever, a mental issue that wasn't a shame. It's something that she wanted to help people heal and cope with. She did it from the time he was in office in Georgia, and she does it currently with the Mental Health Journalism Fellows Program. This program is global. She brings in journalists from different nations, all to learn about the interesting parts of mental health, um, and then to report back out. And you report out globally, and that is helping change the stigma of mental health. It's helping people embrace it differently. So there's people from Qatar, India, Dominican Republic, Colombia, the United States, that are net journalists who are now writing about things that people thought was something shameful, right? You would hide your family member. You would commit people. And you would never see Aunt Betsy or Uncle John again. They were in the nut house. And here is this woman campaigning to remove that stigma <clears throat> successfully. Innovative, thoughtful. I'm sure there's lots of questions, so I'll say a few more things. Um, you know, people look about uh, President Carter's post-presidency and they say, oh, you know, his post-presidency is better than his presidency. I would argue that everything he's done, he's done so far is the foundation for the work he does now. He's always fought for human rights. He's always fought for civil rights. If you look at Camp David Accords, if you look at his post-presidency, he's always trying to get people at the table to communicate, have conversation, and come to a middle ground. Two people who may fundamentally disagree, he's happy to mediate a discussion, right? Camp David Accords is a huge accomplishment, but so is the over 100 elections that the center has monitored to help people have a fair election, to help people have conversations about peace and working together and living together. Consistent. I can't say more about his honesty. It's almost honest to a fault. It took me a long time to see the politician in President Carter, a very long time. It was almost a year before I caught on. I was like, oh. And part of that is because he's honest and he's open, but it's also because people don't ask good questions. One day somebody asked, um, would you do something different? Did you like your presidency? And I thought, what president would say no to that question? And he had a twinkle in his eye and he said, I'd never do anything differently. I love this country. And walked away and I thought, is that the politician or is that President Carter? <laughs> but he always gets a little twinkle in his eye. If he doesn't like the question, he, you may not get an answer, but it's so pleasant. And I guess I've been in the South so long that you don't realize you didn't answer the question. It pays to be a southerner sometimes. There's some smooth moves there. But the piece that he did in his presidency is the piece that he does now with his global work. I try not to talk too much about the oil crisis. My mother remembers it much better than I do. So let me give you another anecdotal story. When President Carter was president, I invited myself to the White House for my birthday. And I, my letter is in the collection. <laughs> I can't figure out the drawings that I made when I was younger. 
but my mother had transcribed my letter and I sent a dollar towards my party and he sent the dollar back, which I still have, and he sent me a book on the White House. And I thought, how did he send me a book when I wanted to go there for my party? But I was young then and we can laugh about it now, but I think about the oil crisis because my mother remembers it vividly. Although we were in New York City, she had a car and I remember sitting I remember sitting in the car waiting for the gas. I do remember that. And I remember her frustration, but I also remembered how much she admired him. And so when we think about things that presidents go through, I can't even imagine the amount of issues that he um, went through. But I do see that he is still himself. He was always a man of faith. He was a product of the Depression. So of course he's going to be frugal. He's going to want you to put a sweater on, turn down your, turn down your thermostat, right? These are things that's how he was raised, right? And what a difference it would have made if we were strong enough to continue doing it that way. So while the crisis was there, I think about the moments of peace that he brought to different nations. I look at his diplomacy to this day. He mended fences in Georgia in many, many ways. And then in his presidency, we have China, the Camp David Accords, Panama Canal, the jury's still out on what side you're on with that. But bringing young people into the library to see, not just the peanut farmer, is amazing experience. And to watch him now we're a partisan we're bipartisan institution. And President Carter will help any president, any leader, with whatever you need. He's a phone call away. And I'm fascinated by that. He works with anybody who's willing to bring peace, innovation, honesty to the table, to bridge nations together because it's about the people. He often says there would be no poor. A fundamental right is a roof over your head and food at your table. And if we all had that, there would be no poor. There would be less than people with less than. There's always a have and have nots. But his fight and thought for the people is the basis of his presidency and the basis of his post-presidency. Finally, I'll say this. Um, he has, even, I have to look at the numbers again, but I'm pretty confident he's the president with the most appointments of people of color and women. And that's something to be said during the time he was president. I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and being him appointing her to the district court. I think about Eric Holder serving in the Attorney General's office at that time. And you can look at people now and see the fruits of his work when people thought, why do you have these people in these positions? And then I look at the job I have now. We're the Carter Presidential Center. The Carter Center is currently run by Ambassador Marianne Peters. And the Carter Library and Museum, which is a federal institution, is run by me. And LBJ's daughters came to visit us one day and thanked him for sticking to his purpose and cause for having two women run his two trusted institutions. <laughs> and I thought, and this is Carter for running the home. 
So it's, it's interesting, his confidence in equality, his desire for equality, his willingness to step outside of the box and think about others in a way that others don't want to think about. He's also pretty cool. He's got three Grammy Awards. <laughs> in addition to his medal, you know, Freedom Medal and Nobel Peace Prize, uh, he says he only has 30 books. We're counting now. We're about 38. He's a vivacious writer, prolific speaker, and a man of God. So thank you. One, two. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming to tell us more about, about Stanford and about Brendan Carter. Of the, uh, his, his close advisors and staff uh, from his time in the White House, whom does he remain in touch with and, and chat with regularly? The question is, um, out of his trusted advisors during his administration, who does he still um, trust and work with? And you should just stay in touch with people. Not, not many are left. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Stu Eisenstadt, uh, Gerald Rafshun, uh, Jay Beck. There are people that are still around. Um, there's still a large community from Plains that has been with him throughout. Uh, if you don't remember, the Carter presidential campaign was very much um, a very local grassroots effort. They stayed in people's homes. Not many realize he has four children, three boys and Amy, uh, um, who was in the White House, but the boys were older, so they were married, so they took different pieces of the country to campaign. Um, and so he has that contingency of local in different places that he still uh, is in touch with. Uh, he's a very private person, but there is that inner, inner circle of trust. Uh, he still teaches Sunday school. And so there's that plains and faith-based community that I think will support him uh, for a very, very long time. Yes, ma'am. Mrs. Carter uh, has always appeared to be a very meek and mild woman and always in the background. What, what I mean, you just didn't hear about her. Can you talk a little about her? I say the same thing. <laughs> I, I think she's in my top five favorite first ladies. Um, when I first started this job, she would say, Meredith, I never want people to think I told Jimmy what to do. And I thought, I don't think anybody thinks that. <laughs> she's an amazing woman. She sat in several meetings. Um, she took minutes. She has comments on things. Uh, she has finally gifted her papers. Uh, I felt it appropriate for her to have her own deed of gift. She was uh, traditionally, she was under, you know, she's Mrs. President Carter, you know how it is. And I can't wait to get this collection processed and available to the public. And I give me a couple of years, but I think people will see how thoughtful um, she was and how engaged. You can look at pictures from Camp David, and she entertained the wives, but she was there. And I think um, they, their relationship is built on conversation. So while she might not have swayed decisions, I think she was heavily involved in conversation, helping him think things through. And so to me, 
yeah, she's not meek, that's for sure. Uh, and currently it's even better because he says he folds uh, the table and he turns, he speaks for maybe five, 10 minutes and he'll say, I'm gonna turn it over to my real boss and she'll get up and she'll speak. And so their relationship is quite fun and respectful and it's clear they couldn't do things without each other. So I think the presentation, she doesn't walk behind him, she walks by his side. And generationally, that's a huge accomplishment. And we are always so pleased when she comes. Uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's pretty feisty herself. We have one here, and then two, and three. Thank you very much for your presentation. Could you speak a little more about President Carter's current efforts towards Middle East peace? He was very criticized for his book, Peace, Now Apartheid. And also, has he had any comments on the current deal? She asked about the Middle East um, and where he stands today, and um, if he's been involved in any of the peace negotiations. He did come out with a statement recently on Pakistan and Israel. I think he's always going to stand with wanting free nations and, and states for people to run and govern their own places. Um, he has not been heavily involved. He's been traveling less. Uh, if you call, if a president or a sitting congressman or senate were to call him, he would respond. So he will assist with China in any way. He will assist. They have a Syrian mapping program that they do at the center where they are mapping different kinds of groups that are engaged in trying to take power. And he shares that information with the federal government um, and anyone who asks. And so he's willing to continue to fight for peace. And if you invite him to participate in diplomacy, he will. Um, he's, yeah, he's available. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. You mentioned if you had written a letter to President Carter when you were a child. And now fast forward several years and you are a person in the this library. How did you, how were you just enamored with him as a kid? And Those are all really good questions. So if you didn't hear the question, um, since I wrote the letter as a child, did I, was this my dream job? Um, did I think about President Carter throughout my life so far? And honestly, as a woman of faith, I have to say, um, I think this is divine intervention. Um, I wrote the letter when I was younger because I remember seeing the campaigning and I remember seeing how cool it was um, that he was there. And I moved a lot of places. So we were in Atlanta for a minute. We were in New York, Atlanta, Houston, and back to New York. And so my formative years are all in New York City. But I remember um, the peanuts, and I remember his smile, and I remember people going, who is this guy? Who is this southerner? I remember all of that. And so the letter, I was like, oh, the White House, because that's, pres you know, that's a president. Fast forward to college, I went to college in Atlanta, um, and I sang in a gospel choir, and we sang in planes at his church. And I really hadn't put it all together, 
Fast forward some more, this position was vacant. And I applied for it and I applied for a different job at the same time and I took the other job. I was in St. Louis at Washington University having a great time and this position was not filled and they called me and they said, we really think you should look at this job again. And I was like, I have a job and I really like the job I'm in. And they convinced me to come to DC. I had known the Archivist of the United States from previous. I was at Chapel Hill when he was at Duke. And it all just sort of fell together. My family lives in Atlanta at the time, right now. And so it was sort of, it was divine intervention that my life would come full circle, right? So I think God is kind of funny. I got these taps and here I am. And one of the first, President Carter asked me two things. Had I ever been a federal employee before? And I said no, and he laughed. <laughs> I will never forget that. And then we talked about this letter that I wrote. And I, we showed it to him, and he was just chuckling, and he said, full circle. And I said, full circle. So it's not necessarily my dream job, but it's the job I'm meant to be in. And I honor that, and I respect that, and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ma'am. Yes, so they started, so the Carter Center itself started in 1982. And at the time Carter was president, he's the last president to gift his records. Everybody else, by law, you have to. Um, and you have, at his time, all he had to do is build the building. So there was no need to necessarily have a foundation to support the library when he came out of office, like it is now. So the center was started in 82. The building for the library and archive was built in 86. In 84, he started working with Habitat and Humanity, and they have a Carter project every year, and they will continue to do that until he can't do it anymore. Um, this last year, they partnered with um, Garth Books and uh, his wife, but that's a long-standing <coughs> commitment uh, that I don't see him changing. He's a woodworker. That's something he did when he was a kid. He still does it now. Uh, there's a book that shows you all the furniture that he's made. As he's gotten older, there's somebody that has helped a little bit, but he has carved the chairs and the dining room table. That's, he's an artist, he paints. So there's certain things that he will continue to do as long as he can, and Habitat is one of them. Um, we hosted the Habitat CEO for his new book recently at the library, and the relationship is so um, amicable that I don't see it's ending. It's, it's about putting a roof over people's head. And he's a firm believer that everybody should have homes and food. It's a fundamental right. So, how, many, how many houses have you built so far? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question. I would say maybe 40 on their own. I mean, he'll, it's interesting because there was, there was a, the Carter Center, when they first opened, they also had a thing called the Atlanta Project that was doing local work. Um, and that has also spun off into art. There's, uh, the, there was an art project, part of the Atlanta Project, that helped children deal with trauma and express themselves through art. And that has turned into an organization called the International Paint Pals. And we'll be hosting their 25th anniversary exhibit at the library because that is now global. 
So this group had an exhibit at the Olympics, and it went around the world helping children look at art as art as an expression of emotion and feelings. And so we'll be hosting that. But that comes from President Carter's desire to have art and culture in one's life. So his art is displayed, President Carter has art displayed in the library, and then we will also have this exhibit to show the growth and the importance of these things. So what he starts kind of continues, uh, no matter what. If he doesn't continue it himself, somebody else will. You have a follow-up, and then we have two in the back. Yeah, so uh, can you talk about the Carter Center, the location, how he chose the location, the impact that it's had on the neighborhood, the area? Sure. Right I have to say now we're very grateful for Freedom Parkway. Um, so when they, I think it's all about access. His initial desire was to have the library in Plains, right? I mean, I think every president wants you to be near their, fund their foundational years, which is why they're set up the way they are. Um, but logistically, that doesn't quite, didn't make sense. Uh, being in the city of Atlanta is much better. Uh, it's much more accessible to the records. Um, President Carter wants everything open. He, is, he does not hide anything. He wants these records available to the public, whether it's the classified materials that still need to be declassified. His thing is make it available to the public. He doesn't believe in WikiLeaks. There shouldn't be any leaks because you should just be transparent. So the determination to have it in Atlanta was there. That land did not have a lot of people there at all. That land was pretty much land. It wasn't like a housing development or anything like that. And so that was able to happen. They initially, um, it's interesting because John Lewis was not in support of the parkway at first because um, Carter had turned down when he was governor a parkway and a toll. So there was this interesting brief feud about that the residents weren't initially pleased, but they did a, a grassroots campaign and went to neighborhood associations and knocked on doors and said, this is what we're trying to do. In the end, it's 32 <coughs> acres of state land and it's a preserve. And we have hawks, we've got heron, we've got fish, we've got foxes that come and visit, we've got a coyote here and there. I mean, we've got beehives, we've got natural Georgia trees. So I think in the end, even though there is this sort of two lane parkway, um, it's still a Georgia preserve and a reserve of land. And I think it's beautiful, and I don't think um, people are that upset anymore because it really, first of all, the parkway eliminates a lot of traffic. I don't know if you know about Atlanta traffic, but we're in that top, we're in that top five of misery, and that made it better. Um, it doesn't disturb the houses that people thought it would, and then there's land for people to do yoga on Sunday. And people still fish and throw the fish back. I mean, I think people are enjoying the space. Um, and you, can, you get a great view of the skyline. So if you're nostalgic about Atlanta and you come, you can stand outside and go, you look at the city and then you're looking at, you're on this gorgeous land and it's sort of how the two go together. Which is also President Carter, right? He's still the president that has saved the most land with the Alaska, you know, that's what he does. Asaba Island in Georgia, there's things that he believes in and natural land is part of that. Um, we are the Carter Presidential Center to President Carter, but we're two separate entities. The center is an NGO and the library is federal. Um, we all share property, there's four buildings on property and we all share it as best we can. We're all am amicable and we all like to eat lunch outside. So it's pretty cool, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome.
we know when he's in the building because there's fried chicken for lunch. And we're like, oh, they're here. Fried chicken, mac and cheese, and green beans. Good old southern meal. And then we know they're in the building. I have two in the back. You touched on this a little already, but um, I'd like to hear more about leading this really unique institution as, as an archivist. What's different um, about um, leading any other sort of archive or, or library project versus leading you know, a presidential um, library? What difference is positive or challenging struck you uh, as you take it on this work? What's the question? The question is, um, as an archivist, what's different about running an institution like this um, versus another type? And I'm, I'm slow because NARA's been in the news quite a bit, so I'm treading lightly. Um, so the federal government, so the National Archives really started out as records managers. And so as an archivist who believes in historic disposition, you want to make sure that you're describing materials that people will be able to access forever. Whereas a records manager, you know it's on a time frame and then it'll be destroyed. And so that ch change in thought is different. Um, looking at a museum and museum artifacts as records is also different. I'm used to looking at it as, I'm used to curating that materials as artifacts, not as we can't sell this because this is a relationship between a king and our country or an ambassador and our country. And so helping people see that these are not homage to this president, this is how negotiations happened and it's not something we can get rid of so we as the American public we have to store it and we have to maintain it and I think that's a hard argument for people who are like why are my tax dollars going to this um, I think it's also different in that it's a permanent collection that could have grown by getting additional information from different members of the administration but when it when they opened it they that wasn't their concern. And so for me, my goal is to sort of make sure that you have descriptions of items in there that you didn't have before so you can see it, um, and that we gain more from different members of the administration to supplement. So we do have some information from some of the hostesses. We have stuff from Jody and some other Hamilton. We have some collections to support, but I think um, that that's a real interesting challenge. Um, and it's cool because the, the most exciting thing I think about working with President Carter or for him is that he writes on everything. He does memos. And so you'll find a report or you'll find a draft of something, but he's written his notes on it. And, or he'll take a memo. The first time he did it to me, I, I was insulted. I sent a thank you card like, oh, thank you. I'm so glad I'm here. And it came back. And I was like, oh. He didn't like it, or what? Did I sent to the wrong person. But he had written a note on the back of it and said, "We're glad you're here." And somebody had to explain to me, "You send him something, he writes on it and sends it back." And I thought, "I'm an archivist. You're supposed to keep stuff." <laughs> but now I have it, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it." Uh, so there's some interesting fundamental differences as an archivist with this collection. That um, and having classified material, I think, is also real different. The stage, the way that works is we have to send it to any agency that is on the document to get it declassified. And if you know anything about the 70s and 80s, we were still manually doing quite a few things and you know, you're retyping memos. And so if you have five agencies on there, you've got to wait for all five. 
And so I think when people say, oh, you, these should be open, yeah, we want them to be open, but we have a process, and we just have to follow the process. And government is wonderful, but it can be pretty slow. Sir, behind you. So we learn from scripture to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You mentioned that his father was a segregationist. So somewhere along the line, Jimmy Carter distanced himself from that. Did his father change his views because of the way Jimmy lived his life? I would say no, because his father passed early. Now, if you know anything about his mother and Lillian, I mean, she was an LBJ supporter, and she, in her late 70s, went to India, did Peace Corps. So I think we would never know if his father changed his views, but his father was always, I think it's the way it was. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I think there was a strong fundamental role of African Americans in President Carter's life in the very early years, and he has two books that refer to them daily. And whether his father's views were right or wrong, he was still respectful of men of cloth and people who raised his son. So Bishop was an African American minister who would not go to the back door. He would pull up in his town car they would notify, the kids would say he's here, and they would meet outside. So that was a way of getting around some things, but in a respectful way, right? I mean, Rachel Clark raised them at those formative years, and he will never say, his father would never say disparaging things. Um, so I think it's a, can you be a liberal segregationist? <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. Seems kind of weird, but I think at the time and where they were living, that made sense. Um, you know, President Carter's friend Buddy, they remember going to planes to the movie theater and separating and Buddy going to the balcony and him staying downstairs. And it's things he can talk about now and sort of, repent's not the right word, but thinks about them and says that wasn't cool. Um, but he also went to Plains High School, which was the white high school. That was the only one he could attend. And you couldn't, what could you do? Say, no, I'm not going. So, but he brought that care for people with him. So I think he's made a difference. I don't think his dad probably changed his views. I mean, the reason he left the military was to come home, care for his sick father, and take over that business. So I think you're taking over sharecropping, and then you're changing it into something less oppressive, right? So. One last quick one. Does he know how to say nuclear correctly these days? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I do appreciate you letting us know that he is a scientist. I'm fascinated by some of the constituency mail that comes in telling, saying that he's a dumb southerner and that drawl. Um, and I thought, he was at Annapolis. You know, like, he, nuclear submarines. I mean, he reads things almost to a fault. I, I mean, I think to this day. <laughs> We all get real nervous when we send reports because you'll do a five-minute presentation and he'll come with all these questions because he's read your report, you know? I mean, that's one of the things different writers have said, different historians have said, you know, it was a downfall that he didn't have a chief of staff early on, but that's because he reads everything and I think he felt like he didn't need one, right? And then when things, when you get into office, obviously you realize you could use a little support and then he had a chief of staff. So I think, um, I don't know if he pronounces things the way people want him to, 
but he's pretty brilliant, if you ask me. That was the final question. I got the look. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This is wonderful. Please give him our